Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all this year's NDC conferences are now being held online only. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. So go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, I'm in San Diego today. This is the first day of the uh, West Coast leg of the Blazer Roadshow. Fun. Uh, yeah. And I'm um, almost being kicked out of my hotel. I had to, <laughs> I had to get a late checkout, but they're going to let me stay here for another hour anyway. So that's what I got going on. Hey, uh, Vishwas Lely is here. We're going to be talking about uh, Azure for Government and probably a lot of other things with Vishwas. It's always fun when he gets here. But first, we have this little matter of better know framework. Roll the music. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? So I stumbled across this podcast called the Darknet Diaries podcast. Podcast? How gauche. I know. Well, somebody said, hey, you really got to listen to this. The stories are great. Oh. And so episode six is what I'm linking to if you go to 1682.pwop.me or just go to darknetdiaries.com slash episode slash six. It's called the Beirut Bank Job. And it's an interview with a guy whose job it is to break security systems. And physical security systems. Like right. He was hired to go to Beirut for one of this company's banks and just try to access a computer, try to get through, you know, the back door, just test all the physical security that they had. And his goal was to access a computer that had, you know, privilege. And it's a fascinating story. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was just listening to it uh, this morning and I had to shut it off halfway through just to get ready for the show. But, but man, I'm riveted and I can't wait to go back and listen to the other half. So that's what I got. That's awesome, man. I, do you find, like, I find when I listen to podcasts, I hear editing mistakes. Yeah, I don't hear. These, these guys sound really good. Okay. So, I mean, I that's the problem. Like, I can listen to Radio Lab because those, that stuff's impeccable. But, you know. yeah. Yeah. They also have a staff of like 50 people yeah. that work on every episode. Priced accordingly, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, there it is. Awesome. Uh, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1533, the one we did with Vishwas back in April of 2018. We were talking about the Microsoft Business Application Platform. Uh, which, you know, if, what's funny is this has evolved into Power Apps or the Power Platform now too, which... 
so that this com- this particular comment amuses me because, you know, Vishwas was telegraphing. He was telling us this is going to be a big thing in the future. Like this will be huge. And, and here we are uh, a couple of years later. And sure enough, you know, he's absolutely correct. And, and Juan Pablo Tarquino said, and again, this is two years ago. He said, Richard nailed on the head with his question about extending the client side. For a tool like that to succeed, and we were talking about power application, the power apps and so forth. For a tool like that to succeed, you most likely need to be able to allow developers to extend the client side so as to provide validations on client side or custom controls that may enhance the user experience. Light switch used to allow developers to extend the client side. Hopefully power apps will one day allow devs to extend the client side with a well-designed SDK, which absolutely has happened. We did a, a live stream with Greg Hurlman over on the virtual dev intersection uh, Twitch channel, part of talking about the the spring show where we've got some power app sessions now because I think it's time. Uh, you know, the relationship between the sort of citizen developer type that would be building stuff with the power platform and the developer is really tight. There's a lot they can do together and there's extensibility models over the place. It's quite impressive. Very cool. So, Juan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Buy, write a comment on the website at donetrocks.com or via Facebook because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Don't use the rubber ducky USB key, though. <laughs> you get a little security paranoid now, kid? <laughs> you go listen to some run-as episodes with, like, Paula and stuff. I'll scare the snot out of you. Oh, man. I know. Yeah, she scares the death she, out of me. Do not She's... let that lady near your machine. My no, goodness no. gracious. <laughs> but it, it's interesting that one of the f- tools in this guy's chest is this little rubber ducky the rubber USB ducky. Yeah. key that... You plug it into a computer and it says, hey, I'm a keyboard. Right. And then it just starts. And it starts typing. It fast. starts typing. Yeah. Very <laughs> it's, fast. It's not and good. It's, yeah. And it starts taking things off the machine and copying them on the USB key. So it's one of these USB keys where you could plug it into a machine while nobody's looking, wait yeah. a couple of minutes, pull it out, and you have raped that machine for information. So just to f- follow up on that, this guy in the podcast didn't his goal wasn't to ruin anything or steal money or anything like that he just wanted to prove that it was insecure so he basically had this thing programmed to pull up notepad and say you know haha i was here and then he took a picture of it and (laughs) sent it to uh, you know the boss and they were satisfied that he had penetrated their wall of armor anyway Vishwas Lele is here again. Uh, it's always good to talk to him. He serves as CTO at Applied Information Sciences. Mr. Lele is responsible for assisting organizations in envisioning, designing, and implementing enterprise solutions related to cloud and mobility. Vishwas brings close to 25 years of experience and thought leadership to his position and has been with AIS for 20 years. A noted industry speaker and author, he serves as the Microsoft Regional Director for Washington, D.C., and is currently a Microsoft Azure MVP. Welcome back, Vishwas. Thank you. We've been, we talk, I talk to Cloud, about Cloud with you regularly, Vishwas. So you've been, you're our go-to guy from the very beginning. In fact, I remember mm-hmm. one point after we'd done a couple of shows with you on Azure, I'm like, I'm going to lay off for a little while. Call me when you got a case study or two. 
And, <laughs> and you called back like a year later, like, oh, I got a case study for you. Like, you, you've done some great things with Azure. What's it like these days? Well, thank you. First of all, uh, you know, it's, it's been a conversation. I believe we did a show on the cloud in 2010. Yeah. I think that was the time when you wanted to only invite me back if I had a real case study. And then, you know, we, <laughs> we talked on the show, talked about that application we were building at yeah. that time. And of course, you know, cloud has been all rage these days. And uh, my focus, uh, being in the DC area, uh, I work closely with with the government community mm-hmm. uh, al- alongside, you know, I split my time between commercial and public sector work. So being in the DC area, work with the government community. And 2019, if you look back, has been a remarkable year for them in oh, terms sure. of um, moving yeah. their applications to the cloud. So is government cloud different from everybody else's cloud? Well, government cloud is is different in the sense that uh, it has a different compliance level, mm. number one. So uh, there are a number of compliance standards, which we don't need to get into because I think we will alienate a lot of audiences around the world. But you can imagine that we sure. can talk about it more generically. There are a number of standards that the government and different agencies within the government mandate. So a cloud has to have uh, the various components of the services have to have that certification and compliance level. Does that mean more restrictions on what can be done and how, or does it just mean like there's more security keys and tokens and stuff like that? So uh, in in terms of, uh, yes. So uh, government mandates, there's a set of controls that the government mandates that you need to have in order for you to take your application to production. Mm-hmm. And that manifests itself in the form of a control documentation. And when any agency goes to deploy this application, a production application to the cloud, they need to uh, obtain what is known as an ATO or authority to operate. And that authority to operate is given to you if you prove to them that you have indeed met all of those security controls. And of course, if you look at an application today, uh, it is comprised of multiple layers all the way from the infrastructure and how the data center is managed all the way uh, to the operating system layer to if you're using a pass service or a higher level service. And then, of course, your own application and your own data. So it's think of that certification as a shared model where you are responsible for proving that you are doing the things that they expect you to do. But then you're also relying on the underlying fabric, and that fabric also has to be compliant to those standards. So when we talk about a a community cloud, uh, Azure Gov, which I, you know, think of a community cloud because, you know, it's designed for a specific community. Uh, If you think of that, those data centers have these services that already have achieved that level of compliance. Hmm. And so that's, that's essentially the fundamental difference there. Uh, now, of course, you know, Azure has 54 or more regions by the last count could be higher. Uh, and each of those data centers, of course, have a security posture that allow you to accomplish various standards. Uh, industry standard or PCI or FedRAMP, which is the government standard, various European standards. So across the board, these data centers have services and compliance levels. And when we talk about Azure 
cloud specifically, which is also, you probably heard of a term, sovereign cloud. Uh, that's one example of a sovereign cloud. Of course, then you have sovereign clouds uh, in Germany, in Europe, in China, and there are other examples too. But this cloud here, Azure Govern, we talk about, uh, it is designed to give you these standards, number one. It is designed to give you some additional constructs. For example, all the work, all your data is within the United States. All of the operations work is being done by people who are citizens of the United States. So you get this additional level of uh, certification control. Wow. And then the final thing is that uh, no one can just go and say, hey, I want to deploy my application to Azure Gov. You need to meet a certain amount of qualifying characteristics, which means you should you you could be a government agency requiring to move your workload to the cloud, or you could be a service provider that is building an application for the cloud, or maybe you're working on an application that requires certain export controls, maybe. So if you meet these con these conditions, then you're able to deploy your applications to Azure Gov. And then keep in mind that within Azure Gov also, uh, there are things like there's a region that's dedicated entirely to the Department of Defense. So there's a DOD region within wow. Azure Gov, which is even further qualification of what we talked about uh, in terms of Azure Gov. So there are, there can be third parties on Azure government, but they have to meet certain qualifications? That is correct. There can be third parties. And wh why would, I got to think the only reason you would do that is you're selling stuff to government. And so it's easier to do that if you're in Azure government. Th that's that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Either you could be an agency, so you're, you're deploying an application on behalf of an agency. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you're, you're uh, building a software that's going to be used and then you're building a software that is somehow controlled by the government, uh, even if it is export software, but requires that kind of control. Right. So those are the those are typically the three things why you would want to get a subscription within the Azure government region. And they really don't intersect with with global Azure at all. So you need separate accounts. They're they're not related. That that is that is correct. Uh, you are getting your own tenant essentially. Mm -hmm. You you are so Azure AD tenant. Uh, it, it is it is not overlapping with. Uh, services in other regions. That's correct. And, and I got to presume that for at least federal government, like, are they not allowed to be on global Azure? Like they're required to be in government Azure? That's a very interesting point uh, that you raise. I don't think there is, there is a mandate that says, hey, government can't be in Azure commercial. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, if you, if you look at the recent uh, award in 2019 uh, by Department of Defense, uh, one of the things they state, and, and I'm just talking about the documents that are publicly available, the things that they put out in the public domain. Right. One of the things that they wanted to do was, uh, you know, if you look at a workload that they may be developing, a government agency may be developing, that application could be uh, a non-classified application. Right. right. It could be. So. One of the things they are saying there is if we are developing an application that is not classified, you know, publicly available, then there is no need for that to be in a separate dedicated region. We should be able to use a commercial region and take advantage of that in that manner. So uh, certainly 
not a requirement for agencies to be in the government region. In fact, they made it explicit as part of the the award that we were talking about or the RFP that we were talking about last year. I mean, I'm presuming that Azure government is more expensive than commercial Azure. That is true because of the things that I just talked about. Right. Did, does does Microsoft do this for other regions as well? Like that that special German data center, which I think is like partially owned by a German company or something as well. Do they have those same kind of rules and it must be Germans that work on it, that kind of thing? So I'm not sure. Uh, it adheres to certain German laws and, and I am not sure myself if it requires German citizenship or not. Right. But, but absolutely, it is considered a sovereign region and it is dedicated to achieving certain specific standards that the German government wants. Right. And presumably, uh, the services there come at a higher cost because of things that we just talked about. Yeah, it's only going to be worthwhile to Microsoft to literally set up a specialized data center if they make it worth their while. So uh, I, I got to think it's costly, but this is interesting stuff just to think in terms of what the opportunities lie then for us as folks who know how to work in Azure uh, to work on these these sort of specialized Azure platforms. That is true. Uh, you, you're starting out with, uh, well, you're building an application, the same set of APIs. Of course, the endpoints are going to change. If you go to provision a virtual machine, you're writing a PowerShell script. Maybe you're going to, uh, you know, let's say the portal, you're going to the portal.azure.com versus portal.azure.us. And, you know, there you go. You can write some command line scripts. It works exactly alike. So, Definitely, the ability to take your knowledge and go from one region to another is very interesting. And I'm looking at the blog, the 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 docs about the difference between government and, and global, and it's clearly it's a subset. There are fewer features in the Azure government space. That is that is true. There, uh, traditionally, what has happened here is that uh, on the Azure commercial side, if you look at uh, there's this notion of a preview capability, of course. So. There'll be a new service that's introduced. It's in preview. Uh, maybe it goes through a private preview, then maybe a public preview, and then ultimately it goes general availability. Right. And because we are talking about these standards that we mentioned earlier, there is not a notion of a private or a public preview on the Azure government side, right? The service has to be GA, has to have those certifications for it to be available in Azure government. Just by the that very fact alone, there are certain services that will not be directly available in Azure Gov. But what, what is interesting, once again, is that the government is now mandating more and more. If you look at the recent uh, requirements that have come out from the government, the government is saying that, hey, we, we are tired of you know having only a subset of services available in our dedicated regions. We want parity because we want to take advantages of all of the innovation happening on the commercial side, make it available on the government side as well. So that's one thing that you will start seeing, that government saying it's not good enough for a service to be made available uh, six months or a, or, or a year later. Mm -hmm. We want parity in services. Yeah, but at the same time, they've got to pass these additional rigorous um, certifications, right? The ITAR and NIST and things like that, like that. That's not a trivial effort to make sure that you're compliant in all those levels. That That is very true. Uh, however, uh, you know, previously, when, when we were having this conversation many years ago, 
there used to be this annual certification cycle where you come in, you service goes into GA, and then there's this annual audit event where you know you can onboard a service. And government has been willing with to work with these cloud providers. In fact, Microsoft took some lead in this and then you know tried to change the process, which by the way uh, helps all the providers, not just Microsoft, is this one-year cadence of onboarding these services is, is too long. We need a we need a shorter cadence. And I think they had got it down to a few days, 30 days or 60 days. I can't remember exactly, but we will meet you somewhere. Uh, It does not have to be an annual cadence. We will come pre-prepared with a documentation set. And uh, here is a common set of requirements. If we meet these requirements, these can be fast-tracked. So there's a lot of work happening there to make these services available. And government, has, of course, has to play a part in that as well. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think that there's a business of government here that has to run all these all these things. You know, part of you wonders if the government shouldn't just run their own cloud too. But uh, clearly, they they you know you can see in the news the huge conversations going on about Amazon and and Microsoft and I think even Google uh, yes. competing for these different contracts and their and their want the want of government to to run these services in a particular way. Right. And you know, government has a, had a long history of running these data centers, these massive data centers mm-hmm. by themselves, uh, for a long, long period of time, of course. But w- what they are finding is that uh, they've ended up with these data centers that have they look very different. The topologies are not consistent. The API are not consistent. These are one-off applications, highly siloed, and running these data centers is not easy. You can't hire all of the security experts that you need. So it's dawned on government agencies and public sector across the world that it is really hard to run these data centers. And even if they manage to run them well, they cannot bring in all the R&D needed to innovate at a rapid pace. Right. Would, would they provide a serverless experience? Would they provide a managed Kubernetes service? Would they provide the elasticity of storage? Probably not. So there is an increasing willingness to look at these hyperscalers and use them as their data centers. And as long as they can meet the compliance needs and the security needs and standards that they've laid out. Well, and clearly they do that. They, they, <laughs> they've worked hard to make that true that they've actually built out all this infrastructure. Absolutely. They have uh, done a lot of work in in making that happen and and government has been you know very clear this is not just vm and storage and network right right we, we are talking now about you know big data high you know high scale query analytics we are talking about edge systems we are talking about uh, you know taking a form factor of the cloud and essentially deploying it in the field in a few days and and you know it does not matter whether that device is connected or not because it's in some advanced area of operation and it should operate in either modes and should be able to synchronize and all of that so government is expecting a lot more uh, than just a vm and a network and storage yeah i i would think that something like office 365 but with an eye to the security side that some of the, the these documents are classified and have to be managed particularly 
carefully, but otherwise, it's just productivity work. That's right. That's right. And of course, Office 365 has a variant equivalent to Azure that we've been talking about. Office 365 has a variant which is dedicated to government agencies as well. Hmm. But of course, you work mostly on custom applications. I don't know what you're allowed to talk about here, Vishwas, but, mm-hmm. you know, is there are they really that wildly different from any other kind of application? These applications are not not different from what we see on the commercial side, of course. Uh, the challenge is that you have to meet all of these compliance standards, right? So imagine a situation where you are writing a web application, a standard web application with a database tier and maybe a Redis cache thrown around. Pretty common architecture, you'd agree. Absolutely. Now, if you build this application and then you go to deploy it, remember I was talking about the authority to operate uh, and one of the things that you need to do is, you know, to prove to whoever is going to bless this application uh, and show them that all of these controls and imagine a spreadsheet with a thousand cells, each representing a different control. And just to give you an idea, you're running it in uh, an operating system uh, and how secure is your password? How, what is your password change policy? Right. What kind of segmentation do you have in a network? All of those standards, imagine that was a cell in a spreadsheet. We quickly end up with a thousand cells. And how do you go respond to that in a manner that is acceptable to an organization? So there, there's a fair amount of that. And then how do you prove uh, that you've met these controls and you're depending on certain services? Are those services in turn uh, compliant. All of that takes takes a while, and 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 of course uh, we're talking about uh, you know the hybrid portion of it. You can't just take one application and move it out to the cloud until you have figured out the hybrid connectivity part. Right. Because you you will require you'll be required to come back to one of their on premises data center because the system of record resides there. Now, how do you establish connectivity? between, let's say, your Azure Enclave or Azure Gov Enclave with some uh, on uh, system of record that may be in one of Kerman's data center. And this is where things like, hey, we, we allow you to access the cloud through a cloud access point, and you'll hear this term cloud cap or cloud access point, which makes it possible for you to connect your Azure Gov instance to a cloud access point via Express Route. So still using Express Route that people are familiar with in the commercial world, but then where Express Route connects to the German data center is through this cloud access point. Now, you have to go make sure you get the cloud access point. You have to do all of the paperwork. You have to pull all the security profile to make sure to get connected there. And once you have that in place, now you have connectivity. Right. And um, so so those considerations is what uh, uh, takes takes a certain amount of time. And then there are only so many applications that you are just rewriting from the ground up. Sure. Government, like any other customer, doesn't have money to say, hey, I'm going to reimagine this application for the cloud. That that may happen for some application, but for other applications… Would it make sense for you to just, you know, lift and shift this application or maybe containerize it or maybe do some opportunistic, um, you know, move to PaaS? Maybe leave the application as is, but maybe the database can run in Azure 
managed instances or something like that. So mm-hmm. you have to think through those things as well. For sure. Well, an express route is hard enough to use just in the commercial side. I got to think the government version of express route is tricky, right? Because there's always some kind of connectivity vendor involved, some kind of, uh, you know, deal you have to make with the location. Like none of this stuff is easy. Absolutely. In, fa- in fact, I will uh, provide you a link uh, for the show notes. Uh, we recently uh, ended up creating uh, a cloud access point for, for an agency. And we blogged about it because, you know, the steps involved were, you know, complicated. And how do you submit a package and go to Cloud Express route and come back and provide the key and make that connectivity happen? So I'll provide a link in the show notes just to give your listeners an idea of what's involved beyond just a, an Express route connection. For sure. I'm taking a look at products available by region. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you just expand and search them all. It sort of brings up a, a question. Has there ever been a um, government customer that you know of that has said, oh, none of these regions work for us because of, you know, where data has to live or or something like that? Has, has geography of data centers ever been um, a problem with Azure government for customers? Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to process your question. So there are a number of regions, Azure Gov regions, and then there are dedicated DOD regions. Right. And if I understand your question correctly, a government may want uh, the data center to be in a very specific location. Exactly. And 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 uh, once again, we were remember we were talking about you know different levels of classification based on sensitivity of the data. And you can go all the way from unclassified data where, you know, government agency may be running a public website. It's all public domain anyways. But then uh, there is, as you go higher up in the classification levels, uh, there's this notion of impact level four, five, and six. And as you reach a higher level of classification, uh, you may require this data center to be in a region uh, in a certain area or maybe closely located to where you are. So that's absolutely uh, something that has been requested, and that's that's uh, based on what Microsoft has announced, been working towards making that available as well. Has any uh, government customer ever wanted to have on-premise Azure? Absolutely. You bring up a, a very important use case, which we should have talked about, which is government agency may want to run a portion of the cloud within their own data center. And that's where Azure Stack Hub comes into the picture. In fact, uh, the US government has been a user of Azure Stack Hub, where you can deploy that uh, unified piece of hardware and software in their data centers and sort of uh, be fully contained within their on-premises environment, and it could be connected back to the cloud or it could be disconnected. There are different uh, kinds of setup that can come into play. And we were talking about an example where, you know, you have some forward base or a deployment where you may want to set up a region which is disconnected and Azure Stack Hub is an important consideration for customers in that regard. I imagine data is the biggest thing there, right? Government agencies wanting to have their data in-house, you know, it's a big step for 
for anyone really, but especially government agencies to say, oh yeah, Azure, you can host my database in your, you know, in your uh, government uh, data centers along with everybody else's. So, so Carl, uh, once he, once a region has been classified at a certain classification level, the government is saying that we trust this data center with a certain impact level workload. So impact level yeah. four requires certain security standards. Once that has been done, and once you've been given an authority to operate, we are assuming that it is okay to store the data at that classification level in that Azure region, because you know now you've proved to the government that the data is isolated and encrypted and all of the things that would come into play in order to achieve that classification level. So, so the data can be stored. That's that's not a problem. Uh, assuming you know your your workload matches uh, the classification level. Now, uh, what you just said about I'm deploying an Azure Stack Hub, for example, in some forward base area, and maybe I need to analyze some logs. Right, I have some flight data, and I want to analyze them. I might want to run some analytics locally because it's too, too expensive to send that data to a region, do the analysis, and then come back. I might want to run that analysis right there right? And so that I can make real-time decisions, but then I will ship that data in some sort of a data box or some sort of a device like that back to the region where it will be loaded into some sort of a lake so I can do a long-term analytics on that data. So those those are the examples or use cases that that are appearing. I see. And guys, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. And we're back. It's Donna Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. We're talking to our friend Vishwas Lele about this. Uh, you know, you've been working at DC for a long time. We rarely talk about DC projects. You usually just talk about Azure as a whole. But uh, yeah, the whole Azure government side, it's huge. I'm looking at... Uh, they have government servers for Australia, obviously ones for Germany. Like they, there's a bunch of countries now that are counting on Azure for various things. Uh, I hesitate to bring it up and tell me if you can't talk about this, but the news is all over this Jedi contract, which I mean, maybe it's just the name that it's named mm -hmm. Jedi. What can you tell us about this thing? Well, I can tell you, tell you anything that's, that's sort of, uh, you know, out there. There's a lot of, Discussion back and forth for sure. So the so so Department of Defense, of course, I think in 2018 came out with this this Jedi uh, acronym for acquiring cloud services, mm -hmm. uh, which is fundamentally infrastructure services that they can acquire so that you know they can make their applications consistent. And keep in mind, a big Im impetus for that was if you can bring these applications together on a common platform. We can, uh, you know, put the data in one common place, and then we can derive insights from that. Right. That that's really 
the motivation for this. Of course, you know, removing inefficiencies and reducing the cost and, and maybe running these data centers in a more efficient manner, of course, are important. Right. But ultimately, it's about about the data. So this was this has been playing out since 2018 or even earlier. They put out this contract and it's a massive contract. Uh, it's 10 billion or a billion with a B. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a 10 year contract. The government is saying that they can consume these services essentially. Okay. And, and of course, uh, you know, this has been in the press all around and, uh, a number of uh, providers or companies were interested in this. What was what was uh, quite unique about this effort was that Department of Defense said, we want to go in with a single cloud provider award. We right. want to take this set of requirements and then we want a single cloud provider to essentially uh, uh, be winning this work so that we can have consistency of workloads and commonality of data and so on and so forth. And of course, if you look today, uh, there's a lot of talk about multi-cloud and you know those were some of the objections that were raised earlier. But right. the government was very clear uh, in 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 you know in the documents that they filed and this is all available for your for your listeners to you know go go get and we can put some links in the show notes as mm-hmm. well. That government was quite adamant uh, this is all 2018 and 2019 early that look we want we have thought this through we want to go through a single cloud provider world because it will give us the agility of moving rapidly with deploying these applications and you know you could be your in either of the two camps on one side you could say hey why lock in into this and multi cloud would be better and now you can you know, put these players against each other and get the best benefit. There are certainly advantages in that model. And I have to say, there are advantages in the single cloud provider model as well. Uh, I work with a large enterprise customers. And even after four or five years of spending time and energy and effort in, in adopting a commercial cloud, right? you know, setting up the governance, setting up the monitoring, setting up the self-service, uh, catalog and things like that. It's not easy, even for one cloud. Imagine trying to do that with multiple clouds. So I do see that there is a merit in the single cloud award. And when this uh, requirement came out two or three years back, Kubernetes and the CNCF, uh, we talked about this, uh, I think two shows back, that was not a thing at right. that time. And I think now there is, you could argue that there's a real chance for a multi-cloud uh, environment to come in because now there's some commonality and consistency of services across the cloud. But when this requirement came out, there was not there. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how three years, how much stuff has changed here, that even the yeah. process of getting this contract put through is too slow for technology. That is, that is very true. And not to mention Amazon's protest about the uh, contract being awarded to Microsoft. Now things have sort of stopped, right? That's right. That is right. So contract was awarded uh, to to Microsoft uh, in October. And then, you know, as expected, Amazon uh, protested and uh, a judge recently said, uh, you stop work until that is resolved. So we will see what happens. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just last week, there was some uh, new uh, things. I guess they had until February 20th to pr- provide whatever it is. They, they had to provide some documents or something like that. that so they that did is that. Right. that. That's right. That's right. So, you know, at this point, it's all speculation as to what will happen. Uh, I won't get into that. Everybody has, everybody has their own opinion about what oh, will sure. happen. Uh, I mean, I remember Oracle originally protesting the contract when it was first announced. Yes. Uh, because it was going to go to Amazon. It was obvious it was like gift wrapped for Amazon. It was going to Amazon. So that, that, it's, it's a problem with these giant contracts. They're just too, they're worth suing over. That's right. Yeah. Oracle definitely protested even before the submission. Wow. Because they, they, they said, they hey, we're that- evil. We should do this. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I think they felt that, you know, the contract was going to go to a single cloud provider. Uh, their chance of getting that was probably probably less. So I think they wanted to protest for that from that point on. That was thrown out. Yeah, that, uh, that protest. And, and that protest was thrown out. Yeah. You know, he sort of history so, repeats itself, too, because government, when government decided to computerize in the 1960s, they went for a sole source contract and they picked IBM. And the S360 and COBOL and sort of set IBM up at that point. Like then it became, you know, there's a whole bunch of companies that bid on that contract back then. But the fact that IBM won it, they became the de facto standard for mainframe computing. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, no matter where you stand in this debate and no matter what happens, Mm -hmm. uh, if I take a step back, I I feel like, you know, and once again, I'll put, put give you a link. You can your, your listeners can go through the requirements, which is a very interesting read by itself. Right. Right. Normally, these requirements or procurements are pretty detailed and boring and nice. If you want, if you're not getting enough sleep in the night, then that's a good document. <laughs> it, for it'll you to take read. out. <laughs> but, but this one, uh, the one we have been talking about, is very interesting. There, there, there is a, a section in that which I encourage you guys to read, which talks about the different different use cases where the cloud can be used. Is it a tactical edge solution? Is it, is it a data analytics solution? Right. Even a serverless solution, right? They wanted a disconnected message bus server, serverless solution. So somebody has gone in and thought through these use cases and candidate architectures. And from my perspective, for government to put out such a detailed requirement and then uh, you know, this is, uh, a, a, you know, a great moment for the cloud industry overall that, you know, they went through this whole process of elimination and they said, okay, Microsoft and Amazon are the only two finalists left that met all of the requirements. Right. And then they went ahead and awarded it to Microsoft, uh, you know, barring the protest that we talked about. To me, as a cloud engineer, these represent a gamut of complex requirements, not just security, yep. but all of the functionality. And the fact that two cloud providers met those needs just showcases how far along that we have come sure. from the days that we talked about in 2010, yeah. where you know people were not even ready to put any data into the cloud. And you know, all they wanted to do was you know run some websites. And uh, completely stateless systems, and still keep all the data uh, within their data centers. Yeah. So, so I think we have come a long way. And even if you're not working in the government, 
I think you can take some important lessons and go back and apply it to commercial applications that you're building. Yeah, I think cloud's here to stay, Vishwas. I don't know how you feel about that. It's, it was a fad, <laughs> I think, you know, now it's I, I think there's a good chance of it staying. Yeah. Not a fad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Well, Vishwas, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on next? Uh, what is next for me? Uh well, I am trying to uh, understand a few things. As uh, as you start deploying very large applications and a large footprint into the cloud, clearly the manageability, the monitoring and governance stories get complicated. And in my mind, uh, no matter how fast these cloud providers are going, there is a chasm between how quickly can these cloud providers release services and the CIO's expectation of the cloud? Because, you know, CIOs are coming from a data center mindset. Right. So there's this chasm between the two. Uh, how can we deploy our applications in a manner that are manageable, have a better governance story? And then, of course, there's this whole cost thing, which, you know, CIOs are used to seeing you know, uh, very simple bills from their providers, and now they're getting 100-page PDF documents, which make no sense, right? Why was I charged this and that? And, and you know, the whole whole notion of that, coming to terms with that. So I'm focusing time on better manageability. How can we write these applications that can meet these compliance standards quickly so that uh, you, you have to do less? Can we take advantage of these prescribed architectures and blueprints that will allow you to achieve this ITO more quickly. And then, then of course, uh, part of my time is, is spent on some of the AI ML stuff, which goes right back into managing the uh, cloud better. Right. Yeah. You no, know, it's, it's an interesting challenge and an interesting time to, to deal with all of this stuff. And, and it's fun to see how it's evolving. It is. It is. And you're working, you're working on the coolest stuff, Vishwas. I'm really, I'm really excited for you. Yeah, very cool. So, uh, Vishwas, I guess we're going to end a little bit early, unless there's anything that uh, we missed that's really important that you wanted to cover. No, I, I think uh, this has been a great conversation. As always, I enjoyed talking, and hopefully, this gives your uh, listeners a sense for uh, where things are going. And of course, uh, we've been talking about Jedi a lot. That's only right. one of the several cloud uh, contracts that are in the pipeline. So, as you can imagine, there's already a scarcity of cloud engineers because of all of uh, the demand on the commercial side. That's going to further exacerbate, uh, you know, how quickly you can find talent because now you want people who have a citizenship who have a certain level of security clearance. Right. So uh, all of those challenges you have to deal with. So I encourage people listening, especially within the United States, and this applies to other sovereign regions, uh, maybe folks in college, maybe folks early in their career, uh, to think about retooling, maybe training, and then move towards this area where there is going to be a demand to not only build these applications, but also uh, serve the country by helping these agencies accomplish this mission. And finally, we bring the value of IT. So IT is not just, hey, 
run my VM and run my storage and and you know connect them together. Finally, we are building solutions that you know speak directly to the mission statements of these agencies. So I encourage your listeners to come look at this area and then maybe uh, become part of it. Yeah, it does seem like huge opportunities, no question. Awesome. Yep. All right, Vishwas, well, wish you the best of luck in the future and thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a